welcome everybody to the fabulous 25th edition of the Metabilis 2 podcast featuring myself, Ben. And David. Excellent. So, David, what is this week's uh, topic? Well, I thought we'd, since we had both seen Rogue One, and they had an interesting technological achievement, and that's not the Death Star we're talking about, but the (laughs) (laughs) recasting in digital mask used for um, Peter Cushing as Grand Moff Tarkin, and then at the end with Leia Organa with her digital mask as well. Yeah. First off, let's talk about if we think this is a good thing or a bad thing, and then maybe delve into what kind of impact it would have in Doctor Who. Absolutely. And I mean, first, we should point out that, of course, Peter Cushing was Mm -hmm. Doctor Who. Absolutely. So um, (laughs) potentially this would um, create uh, new opportunities for (laughs) for new new Dalek movies featuring (laughs) Doctor Who himself, Peter Cushing. The mechanoids and um, I, 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 if they do a big screen adaptation of Doctor Who, and that's Dr. Dot Who um, <laughs> versus Daleks versus the mechanoids, um, it's shut up and take my money time for me. <laughs> Have you seen some of that uh, movie theater poster artwork, screen artwork by Dave Burgess to the Doctor Who and the Daleks versus the mechanoids or I've me- not, Mekons? I've not, no, I've not seen that at all. Yeah, I'll dig that up and oh my forward that yeah. your way yeah, like to see that. it's pretty impressive yeah so i mean obviously i mean this is this topic is is very very relevant for mm-hmm. doctor who in many ways as of course doctor who is the show that invented the concept of recasting a character for their main lead yes exactly obviously it was then ripped off by you know lesser franchises like james bond <laughs> uh, um but, um, you know, the character is the same. Um, mm-hmm. The face changes. I mean, I guess, you know, Rogue One is slightly different, of course, because mm-hmm. they, haven't, they haven't recast Grand Moff Tarkin. They have, uh, as, again, as I understand it, they, uh, they hired an actor who looked yep. uh, a younger actor who had a strong facial resemblance to mm-hmm. Peter Cushing. And they basically plonked a bunch of digital junk over the top of his face. Mm-hmm. And, and hey, presto, we have, uh, we have Peter Cushing. Mm-hmm. Similarly, I think with Princess Leia as well, they they did they they hired a younger uh, a younger actress um, mm-hmm. and um, again did the same thing with her. Yeah, the actor for Cushing's proxy, I guess, was Guy Henry, a British actor, and he did the voice and you know the movements. It's his body, and they put a digital mask over him. And then for Leah, it's an actress Ingvild Delia or Dahlia. Okay. And so for her brief bit, and so again, it's her body, the actress's body, but then with a Carrie Fisher digital mask on top of the character. Yeah, and of course, I mean, we're in some ways, um, you know, some with someone like Cushing, you know, he had mm-hmm. he has very very distinctive features, right? Um, um, not so much of a distinctive voice, uh, uh, but then again, I mean, he's not someone that impressionists do. A lot in terms mm-hmm. of uh, terms of impressions, but mm-hmm. he's someone that it's actually is quite easy, uh, not quite easy. I think there are harder people to reproduce digitally um, than someone like Cushing. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, again, you know, with relevance to Doctor Who, Big Finish has has recently embarked on 
the recasting of uh, William Hartnell and uh, Patrick Tratton. Um, and I think most uh, clearly, um, John Pertwee, um, both Hartnell and Tratton have really been kind of impersonated by mm-hmm. companions. Right. Fraser Hines does an excellent Patrick Tratton. I think they've also got, was it David Tratton they got in to do Patrick Tratton as well? I think so. I think for some of the maybe short trip type story reading and stuff, but yeah. maybe not necessarily, maybe more of it as a, as the narrator reading a novel, so to speak, in doing the doctor's voice yeah. in that sense. And then I think for Hartnell, it's, um, my mind's gone blank, uh, you know, it's Ian Chesterton um, does. Wh- William Russell. William Russell does a very good. Does uh, Peter Purvis also do uh, Bill Hartnell? He does as well, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, and and again, you know, Hartnell has a very, he has a very distinctive voice. He's very, very distinctive mannerisms or vocal mm-hmm. mannerisms. I mean, there's an interesting tension within Who that, you know, this is the same person over 50 years of, of, of television programs. Right. It's the same, essentially it's the same character mm-hmm. played by different actors, so constantly recast. And within the broadcast BBC series itself, we had a recasting for the 20th anniversary special with uh, Richard Herndall playing uh, William Hartnell. Which was, again, which... Uh, I mean, what was your opinion on that? I'll give you my opinion if you want, but I'll, well, I'll ask for yours first. <laughs> let's see. That came out in 83. That was my first encounter with Hartnell at that time on oh, television really? outside of Target novels. At the, no way. Okay. In, in the States, they hadn't begun rebroadcasting the old black and white Troughton and Hartnell episodes. So that was my first encounter with both doctors. And so I didn't have much to compare so I didn't notice a difference at the time, and I the thing that uh, I noticed kind of later was Susan was a lot older, and she was still acting like she was a teenager. <laughs> right. So, so for you, Herndl was Hartnell. I mean, Herndl was the was the first Doctor. Yeah, I didn't know any better. What did you think when you finally got to see the actual first Doctor? You know, the real. Bill Hartnell. Very different. Very different. Yeah. Very, very. Yeah. Both in looks, mannerism, voice delivery. Just, it was not a good matchup that they had. And, and even visually, I don't think it was very convincing. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I think I'd seen, I think the five faces of Doctor Who being broadcast then. And I think, I mean, I'd seen clips as well. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I had a pretty good idea of what Bill Hartnell looked like and how, mm-hmm. he, how he performed as the Doctor. And I don't think you could have got someone who was less like William Hartnell <laughs> than the Richard Herndl. Was it, was almost, other... it was almost like a cosplay mm-hmm. um, uh, doctor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know. Was there other actors of that time that would have perhaps made a better stand-in for? I don't know. I mean, I, I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I don't know enough about kind of you know late middle-aged actors, mm-hmm. male actors of the mid nineteen eighties. Right. I'm afraid, um, but really, you know, it was it, it's interesting. It, it, I, I think actually cosplays. I'm actually pleased with that description. Um, it's really as if someone who just really liked William Hartnell decided <laughs> to dress up as William Hartnell. Yeah, um, there's there's really no congruence at all. Between between Herndl and 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 Hartnell, which is a mm-hmm. shame because uh, I mean Hartnell is, is just so incredibly incredibly distinctive. Mm-hmm. I, I think they did a better job, obviously, uh, with David Bradley. Mm-hmm. You know, in the adventure and in the space and time, space and time. I was very much hoping for Robert Carlyle. Um, oh, interesting. Uh, uh, to be so out of you know out of uh, uh, train spotting. I mean Robert mm-hmm. Carlyle, don't I? Yeah. Who is? Uh, I mean, because the thing about Hartnell, you know, he didn't play old men characters. No. He played kind of short, 
punchy, brutal um, army sergeants mm-hmm. was his thing. He was like a little aggressive, uh, a, a small aggressive man. Um, I thought Bradley was too gentle. Well, the, I thought oh, Carlyle's also facial features, I think, meshes better than Bradley's. Exactly. Bradley has a big square face, mm-hmm. um, where well, Hartnell had, had, he had a pinched, you know, mm-hmm. I, was, I was born in the you know, early 1900s in Britain, and, you know, I was poor when I was, when I was born, and, you know, I didn't have much food, and, and look at me, you know, I'm, a, I'm, right. a, I'm an aggressive little guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think, I think it's, it's, it's uh, you know, Hartnell originally, uh, his career ambition was to be a jockey. Hmm. He's a small guy. He's a hmm. light guy. He's aggressive. Um, yeah, there's a scrappiness to him. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Which is what made, of course, his performance as, as the first Doctor so extraordinary because he became this, you know, extraordinary avuncular uncle. That's an oxymoron. Avuncular uncle figure for the children for the children of Great Britain, mm-hmm. um, which was a complete kind of vault face. Um, from his uh, uh, from his previous right. performances, and that's what uh, and yeah. that's what Verity Lambert saw in him, and yeah, I think was it the Sporting Life that she saw in, saw that kind of yeah. twinkle in him that he could. Yeah, yeah, and that's a great performance. I mean, that's a great movie. If if, if listeners haven't seen that movie, very much worth track it down. tracking tracking down this Sporting Life, a Lindsay Anderson movie. So yeah, very much uh, well worth. And seeing. then in the DVD series, we have also had just a brief brief bit of. Tom Baker being uh, emulated by his most f- famous uh, voice impersonator, uh, John Colshaw, um, from um, from Dead yeah. Ringers, where yeah. um, they had uh, Colshaw doing a few lines of uh, Tom Baker to re- restore some scenes for some extras. I think in Pyramid Mars was the the main main bit. Right, right. I mean, and again, I mean, Colshaw does an absolutely superb Tom <laughs> Baker. I mean, Tom Baker's pretty easy to imitate. To be honest, but his his you know you really can't see the joints of John Coulshaw's mm-hmm. um, Tom Baker. I mean, he obviously the, the guy looks nothing like Tom Baker because nobody mm-hmm. looks anything like <laughs> Tom Baker apart from Tom Baker. Actually, um, his son, but... his son who lives in New Zealand, who is no way really. He has a son who lives in New he, Zealand. I didn't know he, that. Oh, you've been conceding this. Oh, from it's me. a it's a it's kind of a sad sad story. Oh, so really? well, so oh. uh, Tom was married and he um, was brought into his wife's family's rose business in um, somewhere in Britain. And Tom didn't get along well with his father-in-law. Basically there was a divorce and I believe he has two sons. Uh, One at least immigrated to New Zealand. And um, I'm not sure about the other one, but he, he totally lost contact with his family all through the 1970s. And it wasn't until, until later, I think until in the 1990s did, um, just by um, happenstance, when I, I think uh, Tom was in New Zealand recording some advertisements in the Doctor character for some retirement plan in New Zealand, right, right. Uh, we can talk about this later, but I, I, we can, yeah, no, it's interesting, yeah. But I'll have to, I'll have to look it up. But he, he has, I believe, two sons, and his, his oh, one of his sons looks okay. a lot like his dad. Well, I mean, I, I mean, in some ways, that's not surprising because he has incredibly distinctive mm-hmm. features. I mean, this is actually, um, I mean, let's let's segue back into into kind of big finish. I mean, I follow um, uh, who's Pertwee's son? Is Sean Batman? Pertwee? Uh, uh, Sean Pertwee. Uh, 
Oh, Sean Pertwee. Yeah, exactly. So I follow Sean, Sean Pertwee on Instagram, and last Halloween, um, <laughs> Sean Pertwee cosplayed as his father. Yes. Um, and it was absolutely... I mean, again, you couldn't see the joints. Mm. He looked exactly like John Pertwee. You know, obviously, you know, he gave him... He, he kind of boofed up his mm -hmm. hair, velvet jacket, mm -hmm. um, you know, Jimi Hendrix shirt. The pose. <laughs> um, the pose. And yeah, it's, it, it was it's John Pertwee. So again, you know... I, I don't think Sean is ever going to be his dad, but he might be. You never wasn't, know. wasn't there something like there was, there was some kind of scheduling problem that he was going to stand in for his dad in oh, one of the, it was, I think it was for the magician's apprentice or the witch's oh, familiar, really? that scene where you had uh, the doctor where Missy was talking about the doctor and it was a like black and white and you kind of saw uh, in the shapes of or the uh, outlines of various doctors in the oh, past okay. that okay. if it wasn't a, for a scheduling conflict that Sean Pertwee was going to play his father in those outtakes. Interesting. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Because, I mean, he's, I mean, you know, he's, he's Alfred the butler in, you know, in Gotham. And um, so, you know, he's, he's, he's practicing playing a kind of, you know, older person who's sort of mysteriously in charge mm -hmm. of everything. So um, you never know. Um, of course, it's Tim Trelaw who is now the voice of the Third Doctor for Big Finish, mm -hmm. and he does a pretty good job. I've, I actually I have the series one. I've only actually unfortunately had time to listen to one mm. of them, but he's pretty convincing. Mm -hmm. I mean, he has he has the kind of he doesn't attempt to kind of imitate the voice, mm -hmm. but he does work on the kind of vocal ticks mm -hmm. and the scripts are very accurate. I mean, well, that's a hallmark of Big Finish. There, their scripts are wonderful. Exactly, and I think, and in some ways, it's kind of easier because uh, as again. As, as far as I know, Pertwee basically read out his mm -hmm. scripts like exactly as mm -hmm. written. Of course, unlike Patrick right. Brown, who basically kind of made everything mm -hmm. up as he went along. But yeah, it's I mean it's pretty convincing. I mean, what what of course is interesting about those uh, those new Third Doctor adventures is that you have all the other actors, so uh, Katie mm -hmm. Manning, etc., are all then doing impressions of themselves. Right when they were younger, mm -hmm. which is interesting because, you know, um, unfortunately, because, uh, well, actually fortunately, because Katie Manning acts a lot for Big Finish and she's a fabulous actress, mm -hmm. we kind of all know what Katie Manning sounds like nowadays mm -hmm. and her doing it like kind of a little girl voice is a little, a little bit jarring and doesn't fully work for me. Yeah, it's hard to hear her and think back of Joe from the early 70s. Yeah. It's, she, it's a little too cutesy, if anything. It is. I mean, yeah. I and mean, I think I think Joe's a far stronger character mm -hmm. than, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, hopefully someone's directing her properly. But, you know, she's not really as cutesy as everyone remembers mm -hmm. her, in my opinion. She's a lot more of a stronger character. Very strong-willed. Yeah, yeah, and I think Katie could do a um, mm -hmm. could do a could uh, could uh, put more punch into her performance. But it's the voice. I'm not sure that as talented as Katie Manning is, it's very hard to do the same voice week by week, and especially. I mean, I couldn't imitate myself at age 18 very well. No, hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm trying to think what I would have sounded yeah. like age 18. I guess thankfully there are very few recordings <laughs> of me when I was when I was 18, yeah. so I've got nothing. No, to we on. can't dig in the podcast archives and listen back to <laughs> <laughs> the podcast we were doing like uh, decades ago. Yeah, it was uh, it was analog and cassette. <laughs> Exactly. I actually do have cassettes somewhere of myself um, uh, when I was 18, I should, but I've got nowhere to play them. So. Think, again, thinking more about Rogue One, I mean, there's another instance of kind of masking, of course, and of recasting a character as Davros. Mm, yes. Where there's a literal 
remasking of the character when uh, the original actor who played who played Davros was unable mm-hmm. to uh, to replay the part in Destiny of the Daleks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Michael Wisher was unavailable, so they reused his mask, and it was a, a one-off Davros because it wasn't a very successful portrayal. No, no. I mean, I think, and I mean, to be fair to the actor whose name obviously now completely escapes me, <laughs> um, you know, he was trying to act under a mask that was designed to go over the face of someone completely mm-hmm. different, and in a story that just lacked <laughs> lacked any sense at all. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, despite our love of the Mavellans, um, which we were expressing last week, and it's more of an ironic love, to be honest, Mavellans. We don't actually love you. We love you ironically. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Destiny's pretty much mm-hmm. pants. Um, yeah, a, so, they, so they never asked David Gooderson back as uh, Davros, or, or did they? No, they didn't. Mm-hmm. Did they? I don't, I, I don't I, believe I, so, because it was Terry Malloy after. After that, Terry Malloy is the man now. Mm-hmm. I mean, this—I mean, I think we've already discussed on the podcast how the terrible dichotomy of Davros, in that really he should have only been in one a one-off, um, yeah. a one-off. Um, but when they did bring him back with Terry Malloy, Terry Malloy is just an amazing actor and really kind of brought the character to life. So who knows mm-hmm. what we should do about Davros now? And, and now in twentieth. Uh, 20th- First century who uh, Julian Bleach does a fabulous job too yeah and I don't you know I mean we, we don't really see people complain mm-hmm. that you know oh it's Michael Wisher should be should be Davros and it's you know <laughs> it's it's, a, it's an affront to his memory right. to recast him um, I can imagine actually that maybe Terry Malloy's a little bit pissed off but I mean I guess he's still doing Davros for um, Big Finish for Big Finish yeah. so that's so that's fair enough mm-hmm. but you know there's not a with, with that kind of character you can recast and I th- entirely supportive of recasting the doctor as well mm-hmm. i mean as because it's it's a character mm-hmm. and it's you know and it's it's as much as we love the show it's not a very deep character <laughs> really you know you're not recasting i don't know hamlet or someone well i think that's where we get into problems too with doctor who is thinking that it's more deep than it actually is and all this backstory of the doctor and adding these layers of the onion and depth and I'm not sure that serves the character very well. I think the era of mystery is much better when we don't know that Clara was in a barn on Gallifrey grabbing the doctor, yes, young boy doctor, by his legs or ankles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the doctor works well as a traditional hero. And, you mm-hmm. know, like James Bond, you can you can recast that character and it's the same mm-hmm. person. I think, you know, obviously it's polite to, to maybe give that some consideration so that when you do recast the third Doctor, you have someone who's a bit like the third Doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you need to give it more consideration than um, JNT, John Nathan Turner, did when they cast Richard Herndl as, mm-hmm. as the first Doctor to replace Bill Hartnell. See, I guess I'm a little of uh, a different opinion when it comes to recasting our historic doctors. And I, since we have a character that can regenerate into a new actor, why the need to go back? I mean, the main reason would be for multi-doctor stories, which aren't the most successful stories in our okay. history. And it's pretty much just fan service to create those instances. Or, you know, we're trying to appeal to a broader fan base, but I'm not sure the general viewing public really cares one whit either way if we have, if, say, for in the day of the doctor, if we had a speaking role for a recast per tweet, say, for example, I'm not sure that really would have been a big right. thrill for them other than, you know, there would probably have been more complaints sort of like, well, he's not the per tweet that I remember. Or mm. So we have a, a main character that can change 
And I understand why Big Finish is doing it because we have a bunch of actors and actresses from the respective eras that, you know, still want to tell stories. But so it makes sense in, in that instance. But is it really beneficial to keep having this personification of this character last in perpetuity? Uh, I mean, to me, I mean, I think it works well for Big Finish because the Big Finish is really, it's a, it's a fan project mm-hmm. and, you know, particular fans of particular eras, you know, I just want more John Pertwee. I just want more, you know, third Doctor stories. And obviously mm-hmm. the person who do deliver third Doctor stories is the third Doctor. Um, you can't really have, right. you can't really have anyone else do it. Um, I do agree with you on, on, on TV though. I think, I mean, I think that would be incredibly redundant to do a full recast mm-hmm. like that. Um, and I think, you know, for actors who have such strong uh, screen presences like Tom Baker, who thankfully is still with us, mm-hmm. uh, or John Pertwee, um, I don't think, you know, I mean, you can't really do that, basically. It's just, it just wouldn't, it just wouldn't work. I mean, I'm thinking of mm-hmm. um, the the not very good Trown that they produced for uh, An Adventure in Space and Time. Um, and I think originally they planned to do a Pertwee as well, which Mark um, Mark Gatiss was going to was going to step into the Pertwee role. It just didn't just didn't ring true at all. And I think you're right. I mean, it's you know it's pretty much unnecessary. Um, you know, if you're going to revisit old Doctors, let's you know let's um let, you know give us a give us a Paul McGann miniseries. Um, um mm-hmm. that would be that would be fabulous. And I you know I'd right. watch the hell out of that. You know it's. Uh... I'm glad that we don't have a James Bond reunion with uh, Sean Connery and Roger Moore and all, all, the, all the James Bonds back together again, <laughs> fighting, fighting the ultra menace or with their, with their toupees and walking frames. Exactly. Right. Yeah. It just, I, I, I don't know. It's just sort of like we, they, the, the, the story that the producers in the sixties came up with this ingenious way of keeping this show running and we did have this reunion in the early 70s to kick off the 10th anniversary season with the three doctors. Mm. But is it necessary to keep the doctors going? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, it's, I mean, it's this, again, you know, it's, it's the tension within these kind of TV or these, these, these kinds of popular culture between, you know, what the fans want and what, you mm-hmm. know, what the show needs. You know, obviously right. fans only really ever want... Um, more of the same. Um, they don't really want any new stuff. They just, you know, they want the Rolling Stones to play Satisfaction. They don't want the right. Rolling Stones to pay whatever the hell the Rolling Stones have just released on their new album. But that's not that's not healthy. You know, the Rolling Stones want to play their new music. Um, Doctor mm-hmm. Who wants to tell new stories. I think actually, though, I mean, the balance though is good. I mean, I think it's 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 uh, who has trodden a. Th- uh, after the, I think the severe kind of fan service problems of the eighties, which I think were instrumental in the in the show, kind of really losing its way at that point. Mm-hmm. I think the balance of kind of old and new has gone pretty well in 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 New Who. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there have been instances where where monsters have been recast in ways that I absolutely don't agree with. Uh, let's. Uh, let's not talk about the Silurians and, and what went wrong there. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, the balance between, you know, bringing back old monsters, having, you know, kisses to the past um, mm-hmm. and trying to do new stuff has, has really worked, really worked pretty well. And, uh, you know, again, it'll be interesting to see what the Chibnall does um, when he, when he brings uh, when back, he, when right. he, yeah, what, whether he'll bring back uh, old, old monsters or whether, you know, I mean, who is now old enough, new who is now old enough to be old who, whether you bring mm-hmm. back old new Who monsters, so yeah, right. or recast them. 
So we have a history of recasting. What do you think about if we do recast, then the technology for digital masks of at least the quality of Rogue One will be available for BBC effects probably within a decade, if not sooner, in the affordability aspect. So is that something that you know, we're expecting as fans or we should expect to see in the show of, uh, of a digital mask of, uh, you know, Troughton in a story with, you know, Dr. I, X. I, I actually, I, I can't see that happening, to be honest. I think there's enough who, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, there's enough of it to make that kind of, that kind of thing mm-hmm. um, really not, not incredibly, not incredibly needed, I think, in many ways. I would much rather they spent their time and energy <laughs> on redoing the dinosaurs for Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Hmm. Why isn't someone doing that? <laughs> Answer me this. Why is that not being done in order to provide me with greater pleasure <laughs> when I watch one of my favourite Pertwee episodes, which is only spoiled <laughs> by the rubbery dinosaurs? You need to wipe, this rubbery, <laughs> wipe the rubbery, rubbery dinosaurs off in some sort of way and replace them with beautiful CGI dinosaurs. Hmm. Well, see, the problem with CGI dinosaurs is the more we know about dinosaurs. So if if we had fixed the rubbery dinosaurs, you know, just within last yeah. decade, say, um, they would have looked. I like wrong what you're going for with. What we this. understand. Okay, carry on. They would have looked. Well, they would have looked wrong for what we know of dinosaurs now. They would dinosaurs now, or at least my understanding, of what paleontologists are saying is most feathers, are covered with feathers, and so we would have had these naked skin lizards instead of these kind of spelt, colorful uh, prehistoric chickens or raptors yeah. that that were dinosaurs. So here's the thing. So can you envisage a time where Steven Spielberg goes back to Jurassic Park? And redoes it with feathery dinosaurs. I don't know. We're looking at the career of Spielberg versus Lucas. Spielberg doesn't seem to go back very often and revise what he's doing. I think he has new stories right. and new projects that he wants to be working on. But if George Lucas and... had made Jurassic Park, he would totally be re- releasing a new version with feathery dinosaurs. <laughs> I think he really would. And that would be so <laughs> funny because it would be such a waste of everyone's time, including his. So I I'm I guess I'm in favor of in favor of the rubbery ones mo- moving yeah. moving okay. forward and they're they're of their time yeah and the story is of their time and the the values and the mess you know Malcolm Hulk's story is of its time of the nineteen early nineteen seventies yeah. you're right you're right of course yeah I, yeah I, I'm gonna <laughs> well, have to agree with you but still I would like to at least have the option button on my DVD to have some CGI ones leaping around <laughs> and it's kind of my same feeling about um, Power of the Daleks as wonderful as is to see moving images. It's really not the same as watching, and especially with Troughton, mm-hmm. it's not the same of watching Troughton's actual performance. Yeah. He is so expressive with his face that unless we're going to do something of a Pixar level of animation, it just doesn't capture the Troughton. Yeah. And even with a Pixar level animation, it is some CGI artist, it's some other artist's interpretation of what Patrick Troughton would have been doing, what expressions he would have been pulling based off the telesnaps of his performance in that particular episode. Yeah, I mean, again, we, uh, without tipping our hands, but we're going to do it right now. I mean, it is ironic with the power of the Daleks that, you know, the most animated characters 
in uh, Power of the Daleks animation are the Daleks, um, who of course are the right. least animated of all the characters. Um, in easiest, easiest to, do. to do exactly. <laughs> I mean, could you envisage you know something like Star Wars Rebels, you know, which has a very stylized and pretty effective um, animation style, which you know, again, because it's a you know it's an ongoing TV series, must be reasonably cheap. I've no idea what the economics of it are. I mean, could one imagine? I mean, would you be happy if they applied that kind of style to redoing um, who uh, animating who uh, soundtracks, mm. missing episodes? I would think. I mean, have you have you have you seen Star Wars Rebels, right? If we, re- if, if we yeah. yeah, if uh, enough of it to know what you're talking about. <laughs> enough of it not to watch, not to want to watch <laughs> anymore. Yes, <laughs> it's not. I, I am not the demographic that Star Wars Rebels is aimed for. No, neither am I. Yes. If the Doctor Who universe was going to go in that direction, I would like to see new stories. And if they wanted to do in that instance a multi-doctor type story then you know, they would cast a voice actor to impersonate a particular doctor. So in the, it would be an uh, actor playing an actor playing a role in that case. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and sure, why not? But I don't know if the cartoon direction is the best for Doctor Who. You know, we I'm saying that we have a live-action BBC series coming up in the spring, and would a, would a cartoon... Uh, Doctor Who been really good uh, in the wilderness years of the 1990s, perhaps, or looking at it now, it might have been very, very dated. I mean, the, the Star Trek animated series is not known for its prestigious animation. They had different actors voicing the characters. They did. It, I think it would be very similar to something like that, honestly, if yeah. we were to do anything now. And well, of with, course, I'm, sorry, carry on, carry on. No, I guess, and with uh, there seems to be a growing sensitivity of trying to make things fit within a Who canon, I think it would be very limited in storytelling if, say, we we're going to revisit the Troughton years and have X number of, com- you know, these companions and this doctor, and we couldn't change anything in the future. We couldn't really, re- you know, there, it, we'd be, it'd be straightjacketed and it would be rhymes or echoes of, you know, Troughton's run, but would they necessarily be very good stories or just. Um, riffing off the same thing i i like i like new things i like new ideas i like moving the program in a new direction i don't necessarily like revisiting the past or clinging on to the past in a very conservative way um and re- reviving a tradition or Though, living in I mean, a tradition yeah i mean i i mean i guess to you know to kind of play devil's advocate and sort of put the opposite point of view a little mm-hmm. bit i mean i think one of the thing interesting things about about who is it is a very much an unchanging show um you know that the the and i think this is what you know moffat um i think i think particularly has struggled with and is in some ways i think failed a little bit you know is the character doesn't the character doesn't grow or change right um uh you know the doctor has there is a crisis there is a problem um that he then resolves um and then goes away and then goes finds another crisis to, to, to resolve you know mm-hmm. he doesn't he doesn't learn um he doesn't change and i think i think you know the the various cycles of kind of moffat induced doctoral change over mm-hmm. the past six years or so however long moffat's been doing it 
you know, haven't really worked for me um, because essentially the character's always got to come back to the same place where it started. It's a sitcom syndrome. Yeah, you know, you have to reset every time. Right. And, and of course, you know, RTD had a lot of problems with mm-hmm. that, you know, was, was endlessly having to reset the universe mm-hmm. in various ways. And Moffat, again, reset the universe com- completely with the whole crack thing mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, it, it the, the changes that one uh, that had been written into the show to provide you know bigger bangs for our buck in terms of plot were kind of unsustainable over time you know you these daleks can only invade the earth so many times before someone starts to notice that the daleks are invading the earth a lot <laughs> at least in contemporary time <laughs> at least, yes exactly in, in contemporary times you know you know of, you know, if, if, if you drag the Earth over to the other side of the galaxy, yeah. um, uh, someone, you know, someone's going to remember that in the right. future, you know. And of course, I mean, the classic example of that is kind of Silurians, you know, which, uh, again, um, I think Moffat kind of failed to kind of retcon those into, into a satisfactory way. Like, well, why don't we have any Silurians in the future? Well, I think the Silurians would have been better off as a one-off. I agree. And with the brigadier sealing them underneath the moors, moorlands in the caves, and that was the end of them. But it's a tiredness or it's a lack of imagination or it's clamoring to fan memories or just being fans in charge of the show that they want to bring back the thing that they loved, they really liked from their childhood or something that really resonated with them and try to do something with it again. And... I'm not sure reruns or re redos work very well. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right, but I think there is a an intrinsic problem with the show as a whole, um, which is you know the main character does not grow. Mm-hmm. But um, now I'm going to I'm now going to do I'm going to do the the opposite side okay. of that. One of the most irritating things about you know um, certainly contemporary movies in, in a kind of a popular sense is the uh, you know popular culture movies is this you know the character arc where mm-hmm. you know the character has to change and grow mm-hmm. over the course of the series and it's just like why does this have to happen? You know, why do they have to change? And, you know, and then actually, you know, uh, the, the kind of unchangingness of the doctor kind of appeals, certainly appeals to my kind of conservative side. Well, if we look at the Hartnell era, at least his travels with Barbara and Ian, the doctor really does change. If you look at who he was, an unearthly child, and just his behavior in that first episode compared to his behavior, even at the end of the massacre or when, you know, as he uh, moved into his uh, the end of season four, or just um, his relationship with Vicky, he right. is a changed individual. He is much less in it for himself. He's more looking out for others. He's uh, less calculating. He's less fearful. He has changed. Barbara, especially, has had a huge impact on the character of the Doctor. The problem, I think, is that this change happened within the first first two years of this program or the first few years of the program. And then once the original companions go, we already know who the Doctor is. The Doctor and the TARDIS are the thing that carries the series from 
regeneration to regeneration. The doctor is our known quantity. The mysterious part is all these new companions all the time that we meet. Which, of course, is the genius of Russell T. Davis when he redoes New Who as the story of Rose Mm -hmm. rather than the story of the Doctor. And, you know, he absolutely understood that that's how the show should function. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, it's very, very difficult to keep, you know, and it's certainly in a hugely fast-paced and very, very complex and very important television show. It's very, very difficult to keep that, to keep on point Mm-hmm. Um, with that, with that concept, which I think it was again one of the geniuses of RTD to to really bring to the front that this that the show is about the companions, not really about the Doctor. And I think there's a lot of the backlash against the Billy Piper portrayal of Rose, with the the focus on her. I think that was what a lot of the backlash was, and the dislike of Rose as a character yeah. was that the story really wasn't about Doctor Who anymore. It was the Doctor showing Rose the universe. Right, right. Which I, I, I mean, I didn't have any problem with. I mean, I think, I mean, I thought that worked. I thought that worked very well. I mean, I thought Rose was sort of a slightly irritating character. Certainly, she became a lot more irritating when you know her and uh, Doctor Ten became you know a, 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 a romantic item, which is completely mm-hmm. unnecessary, in my in in my humble opinion. Um, but I mean, I do like this idea of the companions being the protagonists. Is that the right Mm -hmm. use of the word protagonist? Anyway, the companions being the protagonists, which again, I mean, in some ways, I mean, it brings you all the way, all the way back to Hartnell again, you know, where, you know, Barbara and, and Ian were the, the originally the kind of, you know, the drivers of the plot. um, And the doctor was the kind of crazy, mysterious, you know, thing that they were having to deal with rather than the main character. Yeah. Sue Perryman of the wife in space fame, uh, coined or came up with a phrase that they should have called the original series Ian instead of Doctor uh, Who. If only <laughs> Ian. Uh, oh, Sue. Sue, the wife in space. We love her so much. Uh, she she speaks so much truth. If only they had called it Ian. Um, again, I would watch the hell out of a show called Ian. <laughs> I really would, especially if it had William Russell like smoking a pipe like that picture of him playing Sir Lancelot. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Ian. <laughs> in the show so are we in favor of digital masks have we touched much on the digital masks at all i think i i, I mean i think it worked okay in rogue one um i am not particularly in favor of it mm-hmm. i think it cost them a lot of money and it cost them kind of you know years of work um, i think they said 16 months to do tarkin yeah i mean again you know they kind of had to because you know tarkin is a main character in that plot, in that movie, you know, he's right. the guy who's building a Death Star. Like mm-hmm. they could have had him, you know, like um, oh, what's that ridiculous sitcom? You could have had him like Home Improvement, kind of you know, like hiding behind the fence, and you can only see the top of his head. Uh, or maybe, or maybe like the parents in Peanuts, like just a, like a big booming voice. They could have done all those. That, that's the, that, that was all. That was all potentially how they could have handled the character. Could they have just done uh, a, re- <laughs> a simple recast with uh, makeup and prosthetics or whatever to make uh, Guy Henry or whomever they casted look as convincing as Tarkin as? They could have done. I mean, it. I think they could have done a better job with Princess Leia, who who I actually th- thought, like, blimey, what's that orange doing with like a wig on? 
at the end of the show. Um, it didn't really convince mm. me at all. People were discussing something I read that, well, the reason why Leah looks unconvincing is, well, we've seen Carrie Fisher most recently in uh, The Force Awakens, mm. and we know what she looks like. And you're looking at a 19-year-old actress who, by all sense, you know, perfect skin, perfect hair. I mean, she's going to look perfect. So she was almost too China doll perfect. But if you look back at Carrie Fisher when she was cast for Star Wars, she looked perfect. That's how she looked. Yeah, that's true. That's true. She's, she was lovely in Star Wars. I, I had a big crush on her, but there we go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the oh the late seventies. Just 70s. thought I'd throw that in. I just thought I just just thought I'd throw that in. Well, yep. <laughs> it, was it was lovely. more than the force that awakened. It was the force was definitely awakened in me. <laughs> um, so yeah, so, I I think I think you know. Uh, well, I I don't see a you know I don't really see that it's a technology that is mm-hmm. of huge use. I I can't really think. I mean, it's it, it works in. They had to do it in Rogue One because they had to do it for the plot. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't see really a lot of other movie franchises where you have to bring someone back, otherwise the plot isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. Because I think you know what 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 fiction has certainly you know filmed fiction has been able to do very successfully over the past hundred years is to kind of circumnavigate those kind of mm-hmm. problems. Um, and I think, you know, if we'd been shooting Rogue One, you know, 20 years ago, for whatever reason we'd be doing that, they would have come up with a with some way to to fudge Tarkin, either by recasting him completely or, mm-hmm. you know, having him hiding behind a, a fence like what's his name from Home Improvement. Sadly, of course, you know, Rogue Two or Rogue Three or whatever, the, the Rogue they're going to have to make that was going to have Carrie Fisher in it and now, of course, can't have Carrie Fisher in it. They're going to have to work out what they're going to do about that. You can make an argument that it was necessary for the plot for almost anything. So, I mean, you could imagine a 75th anniversary Doctor Who story where having every Doctor is essential to the plot. You know, it's up to the writer to work around those constraints. And if that constraint isn't there for him or her, uh, the writer is going to... uh, (laughs) you know, use use the tools in his or her um, um, toolbox. Yeah. If, if he or she has available all the doctors, then you know someone is going to write a, a story that it's essential that all the doctors yeah. appear on the screen. I mean, I think, you know, I, mean, I suppose, you know, it's computing power increases, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, exponentially, blah, 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 blah. Um, yeah, we may have be able to digitally recreate anybody. I really, yeah, I think, and I think everybody thinks that would be a stupid idea, don't they? <laughs> I mean, you know. I hope so. I mean, I can't think of any actor... You know, I mean, I don't know, Audrey Hepburn or someone, Steve McQueen. Why would you want to see a movie with Steve McQueen in it? Because by the time that kind of technology is fully available, like no one really cares about Steve McQueen anymore. So, right, we're said. I just I see it as a stagnation of culture if we uh, if we just recast or re digitally skin contemporary actors to look like uh, their predecessors. And and you know if John Colshaw aside. If we needed Tom Baker's voice for something, um, didn't he do the BT text messages where he did every he did actually, yeah. every did sound in the English uh, language? And you know, I imagine 
if those files were still available with uh, future sound processing, they could, you know, make it sound more and more natural. And you'd have, you know, Tom Baker and um, Tom Baker voice digitally recreated in a Tom Baker CGI body yeah. you know, acting out. And it's, uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's just why, why, why? Yeah. Why why do it? Why not tell a new story with a new actor? Yeah. It's sort of I'm I'm reminded of the recasting that they did with K9 with uh, David Briarly instead of John Leeson. It's sort of like why not just write K9 out? Yeah. Why keep him around? You have a different actor. Sure, it's a tin dog and it's just a voiced performance anyways, but why? Still, yeah. Why do it? Though I have to say David, having spent the last couple of days, you know, with my jaw on the floor about the incoming administration for the United States. Um, the world of the future is starting not to make a huge amount of sense to me. So <laughs> you and I saying, why, why? Um, maybe 20 years from now, when thankfully I'll be dead or something, um, uh, people will think that it's a good idea. But I'll have to say here and now, they will be wrong if they think it's a good idea. <laughs> Well, do you think, you know, it harkens back to some of our earlier conversations of Doctor Who being a conservative or a more liberal show. Do you think this is a conservative uh, viewpoint of why bring back uh, doctors? Or do you think it's a more of a liberal <laughs> liberal viewpoint of uh, why bring them back and cast new new actors? I'm... I'm trying to. I'm trying to wonder if this is a old geezer reactionary approach, or is it a, a young artistic it's a, I, I, approach? I, it's an interesting, if you couch it in those terms, it's an interesting mm-hmm. kind of you know self-contradictory kind of dialectic. Is that you know that that we're conservative old geezers, but we don't <laughs> want the show to come back exactly as it used to be, right? Uh, but one can imagine like younger, cooler people who really like new technology. Oh, it'd be really cool to bring back Patrick Troughton looking exactly like Patrick Troughton. Mm-hmm. But then I can't actually see them wanting to do that, if you see what I mean. Right. So, you know, maybe maybe they want to bring back David Tennant. Yeah. It probably would be David Tennant, wouldn't it? In which case we literally wouldn't care. Um, in that way or you know um digitally wipe out um which would be a shame because i think he's a wonderful actor and i love him digitally wipe out john hurt you know and replace him with um uh, eccleston you know okay Mm -hmm. eccleston didn't want to be in the in the 50th anniversary well too bad um you're in it now eccleston as a digital mask right Uh you could you can envision a time where where bbc tries to assert its uh copyright of a visual representation of the doctor say the ninth doctor and saying well look if you want act in it we can do a digital representation of you we own the image of the ninth doctor we own the character yeah exactly character and the the costume the the depiction and we are going to recreate that through computers and actor you know replicate replicate actors to tell the story that we want yeah yeah but i mean there are some you know there's that wretched um remake of dad's army that they did in britain you know where they recast re- they recast all those characters obviously because they're all dead apart from me mm-hmm. and lavender um they recast all the characters um and i'm just mm-hmm. thinking you know there's gonna be there's a new blade runner coming out with mm-hmm. well isn't harrison uh, ford in it too he's in it but it's like well you know blade Run- i mean i like you know blade runner is pretty much a perfect story you know has a beginning has a middle and has a very good end mm-hmm. like why do we need more of it it's it's i mean again i mean you know i am being a conservative like boring old geezer 
Well, um, it's my kind of reaction yeah. to Star Wars. Why do we really need more of Star Wars? The whole reason Star Wars came into being is because Lucas couldn't get his hands on a certain sci-fi franchise. Oh, really? Oh, is that yes. the case? I didn't know that. So he came up with his own. Well, the reason why we're getting more Star Wars is because Disney doesn't have a Marvel or a DC mm-hmm. um, to do kind of endless Avengers movies or right. Bat movies involving Batman and other Bat things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's Disney's it's Disney's world. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's it's their it's their franchise world where they want to you know churn out a movie a year until we're dead. Mm-hmm. Well, as long as there's butts in the seats, they're both. Both you and I saw Rogue Rogue One, so we did. We did. It's it's our fault. It's all part of it's all part of the plan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll have to. Yeah, I I would I go and see a sequel to Rogue One? I'm not. I don't think sure. there can be. It's called Star Wars. We've already seen it. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Interesting. Anyway, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I I don't know whether I actually go and see the new the the, the next Star Wars movie when it comes. Yeah, out, I but. I skipped the Force Awakens. So, and I saw Rogue One. Mainly I wish there. I'd skipped the Force Awakens because I <laughs> I didn't really enjoy it that much. It's like it was exactly the same as a, just a normal Star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to destroy a big thing that mm-hmm. has a a thing that's that's easy to destroy in it. Yeah. Right. Anyway, yeah, it's nonsense. Nonsense. It's all stuff and nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> Chesterton. <laughs> <laughs> oh all goodness right. alright well I think, I think we've beaten this one to death yeah any <laughs> any closing remarks or final observations oh uh, one thing I, was I just hope, I hope death comes <laughs> death <laughs> oh. cannot come too soon for me uh, the one thing that uh, I, there was a, I think an ABC News special on yeah. uh, Tar- Tarkin and they used a life mask uh, that they took of Peter Cushing to aid their reproduction or the digital mask of them and it reminded me of the time we were talking about face of evil and how the tom baker statue in the mountain or the did not look mountain. very realistic because it was from a life mask exactly and i'm wondering if by using the life mask that's how you know, there's many people are saying the tarkin did not oh, seem or look right to them and i'm wondering yeah. if, if it was because they took it from a life mask and a life mask is kind of um dead that is a very very intelligent observation that i had not had myself um congratulations on <laughs> well, that well thanks <laughs> um the i mean the only tidbit i can add to that is the life mask was taken from peter cushing's performance in top secret um which of course <laughs> is a really really funny film which peter cushing was excellent in mm-hmm. um and i guess they kept his mask so yep. yeah no I, I i'm not i think that that's a, that's a very astute thing to say i think that may be maybe part of the problem because as we've said before you know, um, yes, as life masks are very deadening, and um, I mean, this is this is why we have sculptors to make statues of people rather than just people who just cast some cast someone's body mm-hmm. and make that into a statue. And it's the same reason why we have artists who will do yeah. portraitures and whatnot rather than just taking photographs. Because a, because a, a work of art is more real than reality itself. And it's more real than just putting on a certain uh, Instagram filter or whatever type of filter you have to exactly. make it look exactly. art- artsy. <laughs> yeah. so. Yes, as, I mean, as, as I'm sure Alan Moore would say if he was in the room, um, <laughs> you know, the fiction is more real than, than nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, because <laughs> our, our realness is pretty fictional <laughs> anymore. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, we are living in a post post-truth world, um, as is evidenced by our incoming American administration. So there you go. Um, Good one. This was a good one. Um, uh, Well done, everybody. uh, (laughs) Well, thanks. 
Yeah, thanks for sticking with it too. Yeah, if you if you if you've only just joined us, this this was a podcast that was well worth listening to. So you need to rewind <laughs> back to the beginning again and listen it listen to it all over again. Um, <laughs> okay. <All> Excellent. Right. <laughs> we both got coughs. Which yeah, is well, it's winter in the it Pacific is winter, North. It's winter in the Pacific Northwest. Portland just got dumped with a couple. Oh feet yeah, of have, snow. You, have, you, have you been all covered with snow? Yeah, we're we're about two feet deep in snow, and kids haven't been Bloody in school. Hell. And yeah, I've been working wow. from home for the last few days and crazy there's there's literally nothing here in seattle at all it's just like some frost (laughs) well you're lucky then we are it's we got three or four inches back in minnesota so yeah anyway um we we need to close the podcast this is completely irrelevant um (laughs) thank you very much for listening to a a rather more thoughtful and far-ranging podcast um um, than perhaps um sometimes happens um (laughs) this has been um this has been me ben podcasting at you And this has been David, so have a good evening. Have a wonderful evening. All right, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Metabilis 2 podcast. You can reach us with email at metabilis2, as a number two, at gmail.com or on Twitter at metabilis2. And again, that's a number two. Hope to hear from you. Bye.